Hello, and welcome to the Shingo Principles Podcast, the podcast for those interested in building a culture of continuous improvement and sustainable organizational excellence. I'm your host, Mary Price, with the Shingo Institute, a program in the John M. Huntsman School of Business at Utah State University. The Shingo Principles Podcast is our way of inviting you to join some of the interesting conversations we have with thought leaders and practitioners around the world experienced in transforming cultures using principles, systems, and tools. I look forward to hearing what you think, and please be sure to subscribe. In this episode of the Shingo Principles podcast, we hear from Mike Martin with Sisu Consulting, three times Shingo Publication Award recipient, Shingo Examiner, and a licensed affiliate of the Shingo Institute as he shares insights on how to create a culture of respect that inspires people and drives performance on a daily basis. Key topics covered in this podcast include creating an environment of psychological safety, understanding the need to provide challenges, balancing autonomy and accountability, and establishing a bias for action in your culture. Um, nice to be back. I've gotten to do uh, a few um, uh, webinars uh, with Shingo and in the Shingo series, and they've been uh, enjoyable for me. It's always a, a bit of a challenge to kind of take a topic and make sure you're pulling out the essence or at least a theme that you can fit into 20 minutes. And uh, looking at the list, I know there's some of you out there who already know me and the thought that I would keep my talk down to 20 minutes, you already know that there's a challenge to it for me. Uh, but I am, I really like the topic that we're discussing today. I have been around Shingo for about 20 years now and have had the opportunity to uh, work on educational materials for Shingo, to be uh, an examiner, to be a team leader, to be on the board. And so this, the idea of what, what does it mean to respect every individual? Uh, why is this principle important? Uh, how do we see this actually out in um, an organization when we go and assess? I've actually this week been doing a virtual assessment uh, with one of our clients with, with a team of our group out there. And so this topic of um, how are they enabling their culture through respect and how do we see respect manifest itself in behaviors is really a, a relevant topic and one that is on my mind quite a bit. And one of the reasons that it's that it's a rich topic and a difficult one is that it isn't always consistent when you ask somebody what is respect or you um, you ask somebody to define in their words what a respectful environment it is what, what does that look like it's not always an easy answer um, i think respect i think i wrote it in a little article respect is one of those things that people really resonate when they don't feel respected but it's not always easy to put into words, what does it mean to have respect for every individual? Now, layer on top of that, that we're putting this all back into the context of uh, Shingo and the Shingo model and the Shingo principle of respect for every individual. Now, when you look at the definition that Shingo has uh, in the modeling guidelines, you know, you'll see it there. They've really defined it as when people feel respected, that manifests itself into them giving their hands and also their minds and their hearts. So it's a, there's a participation in it. They're active when they're feeling respected. Respect for every individual is manifested when organizational structure, you know, how we define ourselves, how we structure ourselves, our systems, when they structure to value each individual as a person and to 
nourish their potential, their growth, their development, where they're going. What I like about this definition a lot is that you're, the, the concept of action is getting in there. I think what's also getting in there is that the definition of what respect is, it's rich. It's got different components to it. And as I was uh, searching around and preparing uh, for this, I came across the Harvard Business Review article from 2018 by Christy Rogers. And she defined respect as in there's two different types of respect. And I thought it was quite interesting if you take the Shingo definition and then put it into this context of two types of respect. There's respect that you're owed, owed respect. You know, that's the way people are treated with dignity, with civility. It's, it's being professional, it's being dis decent. It, it's the type of respect that helps people feel part of a community. They feel accepted. It's the part of respect where we really talk about creating a safe space for people, meaning a safe environment, and allows them to be vulnerable, you know, to really open themselves up. So that's the owed respect. But there's also another respect, which is the earned respect. And this is the respect that comes from uh, being recognized by my achievements, having that, that getting respect because of the achievements, because of the value that I'm, that I'm adding or the valued attributes of myself. So it's the opportunity that I have to be unique, to stand out in a particular way and to get respect, to earn respect in that manner. Now, I think when you, when, you know, when we've taught um, workshops and we do the Shingo workshops and when you go and talk with organizations or their team members about respect, I'd have to say that more often than not, they talk about the owed respect. You know, it is that respect of this environmental condition where people are treated with decency and professionalism and courtesy and, and you know, that resonates with people right off the bat. But what I really wanted to talk about today is really focus a little bit more on the earned respect. It's that how do we create an environment or how could we create an environment where I can be valued for my achievements, where I can stand out in the way that I've contributed in my gifts and what I bring to the organization and what I bring to my work. And so to do that then, since we've only got a limited amount of time, I wanted to take this concept of earned respect and connect it with the importance of Kaizen. You know, Kaizen as in continuous improvement, you could think of it as your Kaizen system. And Kaizen itself, um, a little bit like respect probably, can have some different connotations. But what I like is in, in the uh, continuous improvement course of um, Shingo, uh, they have a great video of, of uh, Masaki Yamai, and he is really talking about his definition of Kaizen and, and how it's evolved and, and what it means to him. And he mentions in that video that Kaizen to him is this spirit of improving, but it's everyone, everywhere, every day. It's this idea that it is not overly, overtly big, is that it is not, that it is about project-based, it's not about big breakthrough innovation, it's about each and every person having the opportunity in the organization, no matter what department, no matter what area they're in, every single day to see an opportunity to make something incrementally better and then have an opportunity to take action and do something about it. So when we talk about Kaizen today, I want us to really, I'm focused on that aspect of it, that the aspect of the purpose and the power of creating a system and enabling people to see something, say something and do something about it each and every day. Now, the, the difficulty that you run into sometimes is that I think, and I, and I still see it in organizations where 
I think you generally have an accepted understanding that we should value opinions. We should get people involved in, in what they're in in their work and improving their work. But I would have to say that in my experience, if I'm honest, uh, project-based uh, kaizen, um, uh, belt system kaizen and certification, uh, project managed improvements are still given in a lot of cases, higher precedence in terms of the importance that they play in an organization versus just individually asking everyone every day, what do you see today that could help us get a little bit better than we were yesterday? And back in, um, Alan Robinson, back in, I want to say the power of the idea-driven organization. He's got that book or ideas are free, but I think it's the first one. He brought up this case, and this case was about Coca-Cola in 2006 mandating Six Sigma and all its plants around the world. And what they had as an opportunity when they did that is they really wanted to measure and gauge you know, the benefit to them from the Six Sigma programs relative to the idea system that they had, this daily Kaizen system they were putting together, and they had out in the plants as well. And this had really nothing to do so much with Six Sigma itself as a methodology. It was more around this idea that if we have a project-based, an internal expert-based approach to organizing and driving improvements versus just also seeing head-to-head -head how Kaizen on an individual level, a daily basis would work, this is a ratio that he found that was quite startling that, that Koch found is that really from their black belt and their green belt projects, they generated 2 million over the next year in benefit, while the idea system itself generated 9 million. And if you read a little bit or have some opportunity to look at uh, Dr. Robinson's work, you'll see that that 80-20 split of 20% of the benefit from Kaizen coming from more of that project structured big picture thinking, where 80% of the potential coming from really unlocking and unleashing the power of people contributing each and every day was pretty consistent organization to organization. So when we think about the power of Kaizen, we can think about it from this lens first, which is to say, if you are really interested in it as a leader and you understand that my role is to get results for the organization, to really help the organization each and every day reach its potential, then I need to tap into this 80%. I need to tap into this power of people giving their hearts and their minds in addition to their, to their hands and their feet and, and putting that energy and putting that motivation to this continuous improvement. Now, but there's another side to Kaizen. This, this is where it stops in most organizations. And there's this other side of Kaizen or the real purpose of Kaizen. And, and this comes from a different source. This came from um, uh, Yabe-san, who is the former chairman of Tese. I've spent the last year uh, finishing up a book where I got contributions from him on just the work that he did at Tese. And, and what it means to be a leader. And the first time I met him, when he talked about the power of Kaizen, you know, he talked about it from the standpoint of transforming the organization, which was incredibly important, transforming Tesse in a turnaround situation. But he talked about the real purpose of it, that the real purpose was not just the savings and the efficiencies and everything else, but the real purpose of Kaizen was to create a bond between the company and people, was to create an environment where people would take on new challenges, seek a sense of achievement, where they could exercise their ingenuity and their knowledge proactively. Of course, bring ease and accuracy to their work, you know, through the improvements themselves, but that the purpose of Kaizen was to be able to share pleasure and happiness with customers 
and most importantly, was to create an environment where someone could take pride in one's work. Now, if we think back to that earned and owed, uh, uh, owed and earned uh, respect, we start to see key words in, in Yabe's definition of the purpose of Kaizen. I think that ties really well into that, but also ties back into the Shingo definition. That if we're really creating an effective Kaizen environment, if we are using our system of Kaizen effectively, we're not just focused on the cost savings or the dollars that are coming back, the results we're getting from process improvements, but is the Kaizen system creating a bond between its people and the company? Are people able to exercise knowledge proactively? Do they take pride in their work and in their accomplishments? Do they get a sense of achievement? Are they having an opportunity to show that they are unique and that they are bringing value to the organization, thereby reinforcing their opportunity to get earned respect? Earned respect. So, you know, today we only have a little bit of time and, and these may be concepts you're wrestling with or I wrestle with all the time. But, but what I want to put forth to you is not just the importance of Kaizen from the standpoint of organizational results, but the critical nature that Kaizen, Kaizen activities play in creating respect for every individual, in creating a, an enabled and engaged culture where not only do we provide a foundation where people feel safe, uh, they're decent, we, we treat them very well, but that they also have an opportunity to shine. They also have an opportunity to legitimately show their uniqueness and get respect from, their, from the organization, from customers, from their coworkers as an output of the Kaizen activities that they get to take part in, okay? Um, now, when we say that, that's a big lofty goal. I realize that. I think it's very achievable to do that. But I think there are three things that I've taken away over the years. They're, let's call them keys or conditions of our energy around Kaizen. Like, what do we need to do in our environment to ensure or to help ensure that our Kaizen system, the Kaizen activities we do, are actually creating or maximizing our opportunity to respect every individual. Uh, so the first is challenge. Uh, you saw it in, in Yabe's definition where he said the purpose of what we're doing is to, is to enable people to seek new challenges. But this element of challenge is really, really important in a Kaizen environment. And here's three things that I, that I think can be guides, maybe to look at your Kaizen system or the Kaizen activities you're doing and maybe put them through this lens. Number one is having aggressive goals. If everything's green, there's no challenge. If everything is status quo, there is no challenge. If everything is just follow the standard so that we don't have a deviation, there is no challenge. So you want to ensure that in order to really tap into that part of Kaizen, where I, I get that feeling of accomplishment, I have to have aggressive goals. I have to have something that has me shooting for things that are out of reach. Second is impossible problems. Impossible problems uh, sometimes can be around the goals, but really, you know, I, I'm uh, when I think of impossible problems, I think of that uh, scene out of Apollo 13 where you've got Ed Harris there and he comes in, they bring the engineers, right? They've talked about getting the guys home and what they're going to have to do it. And um, uh, the engineers get together, they bring in all the equipment, and in essence, they say, This is all we have up there in the module, and we've got to fit these filters 
you know, into this, basically a square peg into a round hole, this is what we have to deal with. That would be a great example to me of an impossible problem. Something that is really sparks that imagination, gets people to contribute and creates an environment where they can be challenged. Finally is an inspirational ideal. When I say inspirational ideal, it's maybe a, a future state or an ideal state that we're trying to achieve or get to that is inspirational. It's something that I want that I'm really bought into, whether it's my vision, it's the purpose of the organization. Um, for Yabe, it was really about redefining what customer experience was, but it also provides a great sense of challenge that there's a vision of the future that's not where we are right now, but it's something that I'm inspired to be a part of. Okay, mm -hmm. so all these three things, goals, impossible problems, and inspirational ideals may be ways that you can interject or, or, or inject challenge into your Kaizen system. The next is freedom. The next concept is freedom. Now, when we're talking about freedom, what we're talking about is really entrusting people to make decisions, entrusting people to own their part of the business, their part of the organization, their work. And there's a few parts to that, that that I've seen that make it effective. Number one is, do we genuinely give them autonomy? You know, do we hand them the remote and let them drive? You know, a Kaizen system that is structured so that if I'm a team member, if my job is just to see a problem and then hand that off, that problem off to somebody else to solve, then I'm not, I really don't have the autonomy or the freedom to really become a true problem solver. I'm more of a problem identifier than I am a problem solver at that time. So we've got to really trust and entrust people with autonomy. But matched with that autonomy is we need to set boundaries. Now, what I mean by boundaries is, is I don't mean strict requirements in terms of checks and balances on our Kaizen, what I mean are guidelines. And those might be boundaries relative to regulations you have. Those may be boundaries relative to strategy deployment and the goals that you have. Those boundaries may be uh, you know, relative to best practices you have. But in essence, you're kind of creating some impossibility to the problem by saying, okay, you have freedom to experiment and to provide add value through continuous improvement, but it's within these fences. It's within these fences for alignment purposes, okay? Finally, freedom means really fostering an environment where people can take risks, where they can try something, where that Kaizen system is not overly regulated to ensure that every single idea hopefully is the best idea, but is really also has an element of structuring it in a way that people have the opportunity to explore. They have the opportunity to really experiment, try something as a team, not have it be perfect, but have it be toward the process of getting better, learning something from it, okay? Finally, action. Action may seem simple, but I think that a system needs to be designed in a way, we'll start right at the bottom, that needs to be designed in a way where taking action can be a daily occurrence. The longer the time from thinking or suggesting an idea to the possibility of taking action on it, the lower the motivation, the less Kaizen activity, the less Kaizen energy is around it. Um, it's, it's much more respectful and it, I feel much more respected if I am given the opportunity to take action on something with my team that we see today than I do by putting something into a system and having somebody get back to me in two to three weeks to let 
me know if they think that my idea is good and if we can proceed on it. Okay, that's not as exciting for me. That's not as motivating for me. In addition to action, they need to have the motivation to act. I mean, they need to wanna be a part of that and to see the benefit of acting. And what's often, um, not often, but which, which we need to remember as well is, is that we have to take some time to actually teach people about the system, to really help equip them with the skills to know how to take what can be a kernel, you know, what they've seen, it can be a kernel of a great idea and to actually make that into an effective improvement, okay? So, oh man, Mary, I'm almost right on time. So we're at 8.50 right now. So we've got three things, right? For respect, you definitely want to have an environment where owed respect is there. There's a foundation of decency, professionalism, um, courtesy. And, but you also want to focus on whether or not your Kaizen system is creating the opportunity for people to earn respect from their sense of accomplishment, their sense of contribution they're making. To do that, look at it through those three lenses. Is there challenge? What level of freedom do they have? And is our system and our approach to Kaizen really driven around a bias for action? Now, the final, the final thing I'll leave you with is, um, this is from Eric Pope. He's a VP of operations at US Synthetic in, um, in Utah. He actually has been one of my advanced readers and sent me this, we were dialoguing back and forth and he sent me a, a long set of things last night relative to the book. He was an advanced reader for me, which I really appreciate. And this is part of what he said that I really, I looked at it and I went, wow, that captures our talk today. You know, culture is driven by leaders, but if you only talk about what leaders should do, their huddles, their standard work, their gamble walks, a strategy deployment, it often results in missing the point or it's really just checking the box. His experience is we get better results when we teach them how to think or be, be humble, be respectful, seek perfection. You know, that's where they certainly are more effective and that's where they've gotten their business success. So hopefully from today, we can take this concept of respect every individual and we can start to put it maybe through the lens of what would it look like to create more earned respect in our environment through Kaizen by improving their ability to get challenged, by really uh, giving them some, a good amount of freedom, freedom within fences, and then finally, by really ensuring that it is about a bias for action. All right, Mary, I have two minutes over. You're perfect. Thank you so much, Mike. We do have some questions if you want to open up the Q&A, oh or I'm so happy to read those to you. All right. How long is this session for, please? It's almost over. That was an easy one. Mine it's, wrong on, it's on the Q&A. <laughs> oh, I'm like, wow, these are easy questions. Okay, perfect. Sorry. All right, all right. Uh, oh, man. Devin, what, with a daily Kaizen system, what percentage of ideas should ideally be implemented by the team itself versus escalating to be approved, implemented? That's a really great question. I don't know that I have one specific answer to it. I know these are awful when you give these kind of answers in that for the most part, we could almost push to have more of it done at the team level. But I think 80%, I shoot for 80% should be done at the team level. 
And here's why, because number one, when I'm developing a team, I wanna make sure that the ideas are really within their control. And what I'm trying to do is use their goals, their strategy, their management system to improve their area. And a lot of time ideas that are escalated, they're escalated for two um, reasons. Number one, I've escalated it because really my idea is how to fix those guys. You know, if those guys would just get better, my life would be better. Or number two, it's something right now that's without outside of my control. And now it's going to go through up through a whole different process. So I try to have that percentage be pretty high, like 80%, knowing that they're not all going to be there. Okay. All right. Oh my goodness, goodness, goodness. Cost is often. How do you, um, I'm looking at this. Oh, they're anonymous. They want to remain anonymous. How do you empower people to participate in Kaizen when cost is often the deciding factor? Um, you know, I know the standard, I know the standard uh, response on this is always, you know, you go after low cost um, improvements. And it's gotten to a point now where people almost don't really believe that or they don't like to believe that. <laughs> but I think it's really true. It's kind of fascinating how quickly a team if they have cost as their constraint, it actually becomes an impossible problem that leads to better creativity. Like, okay, well, if I can't, if I don't have the money to buy a new machine, what am I going to do? I was watching, I had a, um, uh, um, a friend send me a video from Toyota work that they did with a, with a local company where they literally went to the dollar store and they constructed to the dollar store, this little you know, MacGyver, that's how you'd have to describe it. It's a MacGyver approach to folding these raincoats. And it was amazing. It did it in seconds and it was a dollar. You know, they did it with a dollar. But if my first thought was, let's get in the engineering team to design and build a machine that folds, I'm now a diff different path. So I do think it's a little bit about providing that cost as a challenge, not as, an, uh, as in a, um, a reason why we can't move forward. Um, I was thinking, how important is it to the, it, how, Tim, how important is the development and application of a strategic plan to a Kaizen process? How frequently should it change? Um, okay, so I'm gonna, I hope this is what you mean by this, Tim. I was talking about this with somebody before, is that when, when I was taught about Kaizen, there were two different types of Kaizen. This is originally with Toyota the years and years ago when I was quite young. Um, there was just-in-time Kaizen and there was point Kaizen. And it was emphasized to me that you needed both. And just in time Kaizen was more of a strategic Kaizen. It was this idea that I was creating an environment where we were really gonna implement a just in time philosophy everywhere and have almost like that master context to then drive some of our goal setting, our alignment of improvements, how we tackled it. And then there was point Kaizen, which was everybody everywhere every day. If you see something, say something. And what I, what I have seen is that, that that idea of this context of the just-in-time Kaizen is not as strong in facilities I've been at. It's almost missing, you know, and I, Shingo will sometimes ask when we're assessors, you know, about value stream mapping for the site or, you know, can you show us some current state and future state? And that's what it's trying to get at that strategic nature of it. I don't think it needs to change that often. I mean, I think it's a standard, you know, do it for the year and then update it and pay attention to it quarterly, perhaps. But I use it so much more as a guide to align the goals of strategy itself, the strategy deployment, and then help focus and create those boundaries for um, the team. All right. Um, 
see here. Sorry, sorry. Work with organizations. Um, in your work with organizations, do you use impossible problem literally and what's the reception? Um, I can't say if you mean, do I come in and say everybody needs an impossible problem? What's your impossible problem? No, I, I don't. I don't use it that literally. I don't really go out there and do it quite like that. But I will say that when you're when you're in an organization and you're listening about where they are right now, where they need to go, um, you know, the challenges that they currently have, usually there are always some impossible problem sitting there. Does that make sense? Like they, they have some mental monuments, physical monuments to their process, something that is inherently viewed as impossible. What I like to do is grab hold of those and really use those rather than avoid those, rather than kind of put that off and say, let's pick some of those quick wins that are easy to do. I strategically, if we can grab hold of those and put those into the context of something that the team can start to solve, it's amazingly powerful. But usually there's already some there. It's not something I'm specifically trying to uh, dig up or go after. All right, let me see what else we got here. Um, okay, oh boy. I, when faced with a turnaround situation where everything is red and not green, sorry, Charles, I'm not laughing at you. I'm laughing at this has been my life for a lot of years. Um, you know, uh, all green was not my problem to seek perfection. It was, holy crap, I'm red everywhere. Uh, do you recommend any specific order in the implementation of the three keys to the, um, to the Kaizen system? Wow, that's a really good question. Um, yes, I would say, number one, a relentless focus on what are those strategic impossible goals that we need to solve. A focusing down of those is incredibly helpful, especially in a turnaround situation. You just can't afford to go out there and say, everybody pick whatever you wanna work on today. We really need energy and effort around a few critical things. The other thing is by doing that, it's amazing when you start to get results, what it does to the culture because they are reinforcing their achievement. And they are starting to get hope that if we can tackle this, we can save this. You know, we can start turning all reds to partial greens to more greens than uh, than we think. Um, I would say that I'm careful not to put too many boundaries initially in place. I would say that people want to come in and relentlessly standardize and tighten everything down when you're in more of a, a panic mode. It's like they want to have more control which actually leads to less outcomes. So I really try to open up, you have the challenge and then I try to open that freedom up aligned to the focus challenge and reinforce that each and every time. Um, and it's always about quick action. I, I have a turnaround situation right now. I'm, I'm helping save a company right now and we almost can't act fast enough. And primarily what happens is that um, people really get wrapped up more in that fear of what if something goes wrong rather than embrace trying to make it right today. And so I'm always trying to pull that timeline sooner, pull that timeline sooner, because in essence, if you're really trying to culturally change a group to really believe in their ability to get to green, you have got to have a self-reinforcing cycle soon. Okay, you've really got to have them understand and believe that they can do this. Thank you so much for presenting today. And thanks to our listeners for joining in and for all of your great questions. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. 
you're looking for additional educational opportunities or you would like to learn more about the Shingo model, please visit our website at shingo.org. Please remember to subscribe and to tune in to next time.